somewhere along that way, um, you know, Nob said, oh, we can kill him. And they said, all right, kill him. Um, get the money back and then kill him. And so uh, that's when the uh, law enforcement bait Curtis's death, sent photos of it. And so the Dread Pirate Roberts thought that he'd had someone killed. Uh, but he hadn't actually had anyone killed. But yeah, it's sorry, it's an insane story. It's really hard to tell um, because of all those different names and because of all the, the crazy things that happened. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like and chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with them. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. That film is famously visually gorgeous. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHS Stores at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Bill Trofeski. And as the intro said, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com, podcasttheway.com. Now today, I'm sitting down with Eileen Ormsby, who has a strong history in the dark web, writer of uh, The Darkest Web, Little Girls Lost, Murder on the Dark Web, Stalkers, Psycho.com, Silk Road. Like, <laughs> I didn't miss any, did I? No, I think that's all of them so far. Yeah, there's a, there's a few. <laughs> First, like, yeah, these are like long books. So how did you get into the dark web? Like what really got you interested in this topic? Oh, look, it was something that happened uh, around 2011. And uh, at the time, I was sort of a, a fairly new journalist. I, I was starting a whole new career after being a lawyer for most of my life. Um, I'd, I'd become a journalist and I had a friend that was using this thing called the Silk Road. And they were telling me how they were, they were getting drugs, they were ordering them online and having them sent in the mail. And it just sounded like something completely unbelievable to me. I, like that, that sounded crazy. And they showed me how to download the Tor browser, how to um, find this thing. And I was just blown away. This It wasn't just that it was this amazing point and click drugs market that looked like eBay, that looked like any other sort of... Um, online market that you can think of but it had this incredible um uh, these forums with all this this incredible community built up around it as well so once I was in there I knew I had to write about it and I knew I wanted to find out more about it as well because it was still quite fledgling at the time but it was growing exponentially every day and so uh that's how I started that's the first thing was uh, my entry into the dark web was via the Silk Road. Sounds good and your friends like they weren't like being journalists writing about it, like they were actually using the dark web or the Silk Road to buy like drugs and whatnot? Yeah, they were <laughs> buying drugs from overseas. Like, I live in Australia and we have um, pretty strong border protection and we're a long way from anybody else. So drugs here are incredibly expensive. And so, um, you know, recreational drugs. And so when uh, people, when the Silk Road first started up, people were uh, discovering that they could uh, order directly from places like the US, the Netherlands, uh, Europe, uh, other places in Europe, and uh, it was like a quarter of the price of the drugs that they were buying here in Australia, but it was, um, you know, double the quality, better quality, half the price. So, um, you know, it was a no-brainer for a lot of Australian recreational drug users. It's like a, sort of any other business. Like, if you have, like, a local burger shop, they'll give you a price or either good or bad burgers, but they're the only option. 
like drugs, you go to your local drug dealer and like they're your only option. But if you have this website from across the whole country, yeah, the shipping costs, but you literally, they all have to compete with each other for like better drugs or better prices. Well, that's right. And that's the other thing that made the Silk Road so absolutely unique is that's the exact platform they were operating on. So you know how it's really important for Uber drivers or sellers on eBay to get their five stars. Well, that was the same on Silk Road. They they had literally had their five-star ratings that they had to maintain. And so in order to maintain those ratings, they gave really, really good customer service. Um, you know, they all said, before you give us a bad ranking, you know, let get in contact with us, tell us what the problem was. If the drugs weren't as high quality as we said they were, we'll reship them, all those sorts of things. And um, so it, it really did open up this whole new frontier of people who were so used to just going, you know, to a nightclub or to a friend of a friend and, and picking up pills or powders or whatever it was and really not knowing what was in them. Unless they took them home, uh, ran a test, they, they had no idea. But with something like the Silk Road, all of a sudden what they had was not only the feedback, but, um, you know, they, they'd have indi um, independent testers that would go to all the big dealers and, and get their free drugs <laughs> and, then, and then write up all these independent tests and, and, and show all the, the um, results that they had from the test saying, yes, this one is 98% pure, this one is really MDMA, this one isn't MDMA, don't buy from this guy. So, um, you know, it, it, it actually became a safer way of buying recreational drugs for recreational drug users it's really like uh they got like food testers or critics that go to restaurants or whatnot it's like literally the job is here let me uh, see that drug right there test it real quick and <laughs> that just sounds so yeah, wild to me it, it really is it really is and they, they took this um you know great pride in having the best results from these these testers that were doing these tests as well um you know and they, and they took uh the whole site Everything about it took uh, safety really, really seriously. So, um, you know, after a while, they actually had a doctor on site, like a, a doctor who was a real doctor. He used his real name. He was a well-known person, um, Dr. Fernando Cordovia, and he was offering free bespoke advice to any people that wanted to take drugs about, um, you know, the way their drugs might in interact with other parts of their lifestyle, other drugs that they had to take legitimately and all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, they, they took it seriously because obviously, um, you know, a dead client isn't a repeat client. So they wanted to keep their customers as healthy as possible. Oh, the local thing, I know fentanyl is mixed in with like drugs here and there and people are overdosing in a whole episode not, not too long ago. but to then have a doctor on the website to actually respond to the feedback. That's just wild. And these people are, once you're on the dark web or Silk Road, you're completely anonymous. So when you reach out to the doctor, you're not exposing yourself. No, that's right. I mean, obviously he wasn't anonymous. Um, I also was not anonymous. So I was um, uh, on there as a journalist saying, look, you know, this is me. This is the work I do. Um, and I really want to to report on this in a fairly non-hysterical way, a really factual sort of way, more than welcome to come and talk to me. And so, um, you know, normally these people hate journalists and, and don't want to have anything to do with them. But uh, just the fact that I was open and honest about who I was meant that they could choose to speak to me or not to speak to me. They weren't being tricked into speaking to me. And so a lot of people wanted to give their stories. You know, I had more over the years, more and more people contacting me all the time with their different stories about, you know, good and bad about their experiences on the dark web. Wow. So, yeah, that's all right. So you expose yourself. You're, hey, this is what I am, everybody. I'm not lying. I'm not phony. I'm not agent or anything. 
And so when people reached out to you, what were some of these people that you talked with? Uh, well, they were all sorts of users. So, I mean, some some of them were uh, people were vendors that wanted to, um, you know, build up business for themselves, and so they they wanted to do an interview with me and tell tell me how uh, they ran their 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 businesses. Um, some of them were users that just wanted to share their experiences. Um, you know, overwhelmingly, especially in Australia, there was um, you know from recreational drug users, and you know, I'm, I, I'll say outright i come from a, a a point of view that i do not believe in the war of drugs i believe that it is an immoral war that is uh, you know killing kids and um uh, you know unjustly targeting certain races and that sort of thing so i don't believe in the war on drugs i think drugs should be a health problem and not a, a criminal problem and you know drugs should be uh, legal they sh there should be um, help for anybody that needs needs help because of the drugs and those who want to take them peacefully and safely should be allowed to do so um so you know uh, a lot of people were knew that that was my background I, I mean i wrote for mainstream media so i couldn't be as forceful about that as as i might have wanted to be but they did know that at least i was reporting on it fairly so a lot of people just wanted to tell their stories interesting yeah and yeah, like the war on drug, abysmal mistake, all constantly coming up. And why do you think these people are like doing the drugs? Do you think it's like sort of a form of escapism or people are dealing with like addiction or some people just want to experiment and have a good time? It's the whole gamut. I mean, there are, there's a million different reasons why people take drugs, but the, the main one is, is uh, they enjoy them. You know, people just enjoy taking drugs. And most of the drugs, especially in those early days, what you were seeing was uh, weed, MDMA or ecstasy, um, LSD, the psychedelics, those sorts of things. So mostly the, uh, you know, not the, the really hard drugs, what we'd call party drugs. And, you know, all those things, if, if you look into the, the research and, and academics behind it, all those things are actually safer for you, for, for society than things, legal things like alcohol or um, tobacco. I heard that alcohol is like by far, it kills a great majority beyond any other opioid, any other drug. Absolutely. So it, it kills more of its users, but also it, it's um, worst for all the people around uh, abusers. And of course, you know, most, most of us use alcohol. We have a, a drink with dinner or whatever, but it's the abusers that, that cause all the issues so alcoholics can destroy their families you know they get behind a wheel they they destroy other people's lives and most of these drugs don't actually put you as out of control as alcohol does nor are they as addictive as alcohol is um, of course uh, there are drugs that are um, you know there's there's more dangerous ones you mentioned fentanyl that's a horrendously dangerous drug um, and uh, you know can't see a lot of good with methamphetamine either I mean Again, most people don't abuse it. They just use it to stay awake and, and hyper. But, um, you know, it does cause a lot of issues as well. But I think that it's still better to have that out there and, and treated in a medical way rather than just locking people up. Um, and, you know, the people that should be locked up are the people that sell things as other things, which is, happens a lot more on the street than it does online. So, um, you know, the classic one is, is the uh, N-bombs that are coming up that are being sold because they mimic uh, LSD or they mimic MDMA, but they're not as safe as LSD or MDMA. Um, they're far more dangerous drugs, but they, they mimic the effects and they're harder to detect because, you know, you haven't had 20, 30, 40 years of um, being able to 
detect them. So those sorts of things are really dangerous. And I don't think, I think it's horrendous when people sell those um, claiming that they are the drug that they're actually mimicking. And yeah. I've forgotten the question now, which I often do when I start ranting. Sorry. Oh, that was good. I forgot it too. Even like weed, maybe a year or two ago, there was like K2 was going around like fake synthetic weed. And so you just Ooh. never even know. Horrendous yeah. stuff. Yeah. Bring it back. So somebody listening in and they don't know what is the Silk Road? Oh, so it's it's what was the Silk Road. The Silk Road was the first major point and click drugs market, online drugs market on that used the dark web. So it was the first one to really harness the technologies of the dark web, which are the the Tor browser, which provides you with access to um, to what they call hidden services, which are basically websites that you can't get to on your normal browser. So you weren't able to stumble across Silk Road if you were just Googling something. You have to go out of your way to download this special browser and then it opens up looking like just any other browser, but the difference is it can access dark websites. And Silk Road was one of those dark websites. The way you know that it's a site on the dark web is instead of having like .com or .org or .net at the end, it has .onion, and that's how you know you've got a dark website. So even if you have the exact address and you put it into your normal browser, it's not going to come up. It's going to say page not found. This site does not exist. So you need the Tor browser in order to access these sites. These sites are, uh, you know, both the owner of the site, the person behind the site and the person visiting the site are completely anonymized from each other. So the site knows that it's got a visitor, but it has no idea where it's had that visitor from. And the visitor has no idea of finding out who hosts the site, who's behind the site, what country it's in or anything like that. So that makes it perfect for being a shop front for uh, illegal goods. Uh, then the other thing that, that came out around the same time, a little bit earlier, 2009, was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was the first way, it's the, the first major cryptocurrency, not the first crypto, but the first major cryptocurrency that gave, got a really robust use case thanks to Silk Road. It was worth uh, less than a dollar when Silk Road started up. And as you probably know, like right now here in Australia, it's worth um, $76,000. I think in the US, it's something like 50, 50 something thousand dollars right now for one Bitcoin. Back then it was worth less than a dollar. Um, and that was enabled people to make transactions online that they could be completely safe with, but without having to know who the other person they're transacting with is. And there's no, I can't say there's no trail that leads back to people because it is. There's uh, the Bitcoin is um, you know it's not anonymous as people thought, but you don't have to know the identity of the person on the other side of the transaction in order to carry the transaction out. So they harness those two technologies as well as PGP encryption, uh, which was able to create a trust system. That meant that if um, if people were using uh, this PGP encryption, they could what they call sign all of their um, communications so that you knew you were dealing with the same person all the time. Otherwise, you know, anyone could say, you know, I'm A1 dealer and you didn't know whether you were really dealing with A1 dealer. But if they were A1 dealer and they were able to sign it with this encryption, then you knew you were dealing with the same person all the time. So putting all those together, what the what Ross Ulbricht did, and of course we had no idea it was Ross Ulbricht at the time, but what Ross Ulbricht did was create this mass market um, e-commerce site that was based on all the popular e-commerce sites. It was like eBay, it was like Amazon. It brought together sellers and buyers in this one marketplace. But rather than dealing direct with each other, what uh, a, a buyer would put money into escrow or Bitcoin into escrow and they'd wait until their, their 
goods arrived and then they would release the funds from escrow to to the seller while Silk Road took their, their you know, 5 five to 10%. And what that meant was that, uh, you know, if it didn't turn up or if they thought they were getting ripped off, it would go to disputes and Silk Road would actually, you know, arbitrate those disputes for them. And it ran very, very smoothly. <laughs> it, it worked out... Um, better than I'm sure Ross Albert ever would have dreamed or hoped at the time that he was opening it up, had no idea. And it just grew phenomenally. Like people really realised that these technologies that were so robust uh, and they worked so well together and it was so smooth that, you know, this was the beginning of this incredible new phenomenon of, of ways of selling drugs. And I heard the format of it is what really helped it too. Like you said, uh, you had to send your Bitcoin and then the person selling you the drug would see that you sent the Bitcoin, send you the drug. And then once you get the drug, you sign it, they sign it. And then the transaction goes through. But originally people would just give the Bitcoin straight to the seller. And then there was like a mistake there because the guy wouldn't sell the drugs. They would just take the Bitcoin and run. But then like right away, they're, well, quick, that's right. Yeah, they're quick to update it, fix that issue with what you said. And also... I heard the software was like, you, you said like twice, like eBay or Amazon, which is such a user-friendly software. Like, oh, let me just scroll down the same. I go through Amazon. Look at this drug. Oh, a DMT. This the Bitcoin price. Uh, let me type in cocaine. Let me see that. It has like refuse. It has ratings under it. Like just model of like off Amazon, like just a great user-friendly software. It was exactly like that. And that was the whole idea behind it was it was going to look like any one of those e-commerce sites. And the other big difference is, of course, um, you know, people were, were selling drugs online long before Silk Road ever came along, but it had to be really clandestine. You had to know someone that you could, you know, get in touch with and all that sort of thing. Um, and it had to be hidden because as soon as the, the um, law enforcement found out about it, it's going to be shut down, you know, they'd get in touch with their IP address and shut it down. Having it hosted on the dark web meant they advertised it. They wanted as many people to know as possible because they wanted as many customers signing up as possible, which meant as many sellers would sign up and it would just keep on growing. So, you know, they advertised it and said, hey, look at this new place. Here it is. Come and check it out. They went on to Reddit. They went on to, um, you know, Bitcoin forums on online and, and told people about it. So that was the other massive change was it was able to operate in this really brazen way and attract new customers without law enforcement being able to shut it down. And something I found funny with like the advertising theme, I heard that they would put like advertisements on the website, but then some people selling drugs would say, hey, buy from me. Every 10% of purchases goes to local farmers or like a local education school. <laughs> Yeah, pe people people did have all that sort of stuff. So they had like Silk Road itself. So um, they wouldn't allow um, sort of outside advertising. They wouldn't allow any of the dealers to advertise their own personal sites. Um, you know, they, they'd only allow them to sell through Silk Road. But, yeah, what a lot of people did was to market themselves, they would say, you know, we'll send um, – X amount of Bitcoin to these, these charities, or you can choose the charities. And so long as the charities took Bitcoin, then people could actually check that they did in fact send that money. So you could actually look up on the blockchain, check out that Bitcoin address and say, oh, well, the money actually did go in there. Um, uh, it, it caused some problems for some charities because they were, they were, you know, um, by, by accepting this, that uh, they were accepting, you know, money from drug dealers. 
Um, but yeah, they had sales, they had giveaways, um, they had competitions, all those things to attract customers that anybody else in e-commerce does. I laugh because it seems so absurd, but at the same time, it's it's an economy. It's the same. It's just you're talking about drugs versus buying a book or a calculator or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, so um, how did the government, I guess, eventually shut it down? Well, no, first, what year is this taking place? Like 2011-ish to when? Yeah, so it started um, in 2011, right at the beginning of 2011. It exploded after, uh, I don't know if, if you remember Gorka. Gorka was um, a, a news gossip site. It's on now, um, but it was sort of a, a predecessor to, I'm not really read it because it was more news, but um, it was basically a gossip site. And uh, on the 1st of June 2011, they ran this article called um, the underground website where you can buy anything imaginable. And after that, uh, you know, use just absolutely exploded of Silk Road. And then uh, it just kept on growing exponentially. So 2012 was probably the halcyon days of Silk Road where, you know, it was still um, dark web was still a, a completely mysterious to law enforcement and it was getting more and more users every day. Then it ran straight through to 2013, all looking fairly, like from the outside, it all looked like it was running very smoothly. We later found out it was anything but smooth underneath. So um, all, all this time when when all the people from the outside were thinking, oh, this is just like this really great way of, of uh, buying drugs and police are never going to detect us and all that. Um, in the background, the owner was getting... Um, he was getting threatened. He was uh, having to pay off hackers. He was uh, having to um, uh, pay for intel about law enforcement. He was having money stolen from him. He was, um, yeah, all, all sorts of things were happening in the background, but we didn't know about that at the time. So it ran until November uh, 23rd, uh, October 2013, which was when the owner, Ross Albrecht, was arrested and Silk Road was shut down. Wow, so, yeah. Russ Albrecht, Albrecht, did yeah. I say that right? Yep, yeah. Russ Albrecht. <laughs> yeah, so um, he codenamed Dread uh, Pirate Roberts. I basically, my understanding was, I was reading an article, and the government said it was like finding, when they were trying to find out who was running the Silk Road, it was like trying to find a microchip in a haystack. Like, they had no idea where to go or where to find him or even who the organization running it. So, like, how did he have to deal with that issue so much? Like, how were hackers able to find him or how were they able to target him the same if he was supposed to be so hard to find? Uh, well, the, the hacking things that happened in the background, they weren't so much that they were hacking Silk Road or finding who, who was behind Silk Road. They were able to um, uh, find certain vulnerabilities in the, in the software that allowed them to sometimes steal money from some of the vendors or, or take over certain accounts and... and trick people, social engineer people into giving up stuff. So that was what those hackers in the background were doing. Or more often than not, what they what they were doing was um, they would DDoS him. So, um, you know, that's when you, you just get a whole lot of bots to try to log on all at once. And so the, the site can't handle it and goes down. So that's what was most often happening to him. And then they would say, we'll stop the DDoS if you pay us money. And he was paying like $50,000 at a time to stop them from, from DDoSing him and, you know, taking him offline. But it's not like they were uncovering anything. They were just making it impossible for anyone to log on because of the traffic. 
And so he would pay out massive amounts of money to these people for, to, to stop doing that to him. Um, the way law enforcement tracked him down in the end, so it was it was a huge thing. Every three-letter agency you've ever heard of was involved in it, you know, your DEA, your HSI, your um, FBI, all of them, all of them were involved in it. And um, they tried a lot of different methods, um, but the one thing that really brought him undone in the end, and it was an IRS guy, of course, that, that discovered it, way back when he first uh, started Silk Road, he was trying to drum up business before it you know, had like two things for sale on there, mushrooms for sale on there, and he's trying to drum up business. And he um, he posted in a couple of uh, a, a forum called Shroomery and a forum called Bitcoin Talk, and he gave himself the name Eltoid and said, oh, I've just stumbled across this site. What do you think? You know, um, is, it, is it something that you'd be interested in? And um, that Eltoid character, at one point he was posting on um, another site, um, Stack Overflow, and used his real name, Ross Ulbricht, at gmail.com in one of his advertisements on there. So it was just putting those sorts of things together. Um, that, that got him on their radar, that got Ross Ulbricht on their radar. But there was all sorts of other things going on in the background as well. They had a whole lot of other people that they they believed were the Dread Pirate Roberts that, that wasn't. So uh, one of the major ones was this guy, Mark Capellas, who owned um, a Bitcoin exchange, Mt. Gox, that uh, went down, uh, ripped off a whole lot of people. So th- there was a whole lot of people that they thought it was. But not only that, um, they also managed, Homeland Security managed to get a undercover agent on their staff. So Silk Road by the end had quite a large staff. It had moderators from all around the world, had uh, administrators, it had programmers. So it had a, a pretty large staff and they were able to uncover one of their moderators and take over her account. So um, they, they managed to socially engineer her. Um, you know, there's a saying in hacking, it's a lot easier to hack a person than it is to hack a computer. And that's what they were doing. They were aiming at all these staff and trying to figure out, trying to find, get them to give up some information about themselves. And so one of them, um, uh, a moderator called Cirrus, gave up some information about herself. They were able to find her and then they took over her account. And so that, then they were in, they were part of the Silk Road infrastructure, so part, part of the staff, um, though she didn't have a lot of, uh, she had no idea who the Dread Pirate Roberts were. None of the staff did. Uh, but that was another way. That, so it was a whole lot of things brought together that they inf- infiltrated and then um, they were able to eventually catch Ross Ulbricht while he was chatting online um, in, in the, the uh, admin panel of Silk Road to this undercover agent, Cirrus. So they, they found out Ross Ulbricht through this Gmail search. They followed him to this library. Um, they had Cirrus, the undercover agent, chatting to him online, which meant that his computer would be open. And then all the other patrons in the library that day were undercover FBI agents and oh. they just jumped on him and grabbed the computer from him. So <laughs> that's how he was taken down. That sounds like a scene out of a movie. Like, oh, he just walks into the library, he sits down, pulls his laptop out, and everybody's sitting around, the <laughs> workers all just jump up, FBI, freeze, get down. Like. <laughs> Well, they, they started, they had two of them start a fight behind him, like um, as if it was a domestic, big yelling domestic. And as he turned around, one of the others jumped on there and grabbed his computer. Oh, so he didn't even have time to react really. <laughs> yeah, it's no, good. But they, had to, they had to have it open. 
if you shut it, it would they wouldn't have, it would be a brick. They wouldn't be able to get back in. Oh wow! Yeah, they planned everything. They were smart. Did um, yeah. I hadn't finished the article yet, but I was reading about this. I think his name was <laughs> E. E. I think his name was like E or something, but he was supposed to be this cartel guy. Like it was fake. He's like FBI. He's an agent. Oh, no. He's supposed no. to be. Hot gnome. Yep. Nom. 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 With a B. Yeah, uh, B. N O B. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was yeah supposed to be an agent. He's like saying, hey, I want to buy your site. I want to buy your business. And uh, I haven't gotten past that. But like, was he was he the one who was able to get them to find him in the end, or what role did he play in? <laughs> no, he wasn't. Uh, he did play, play a role. So the role he played was he was um, uh, part of the Silk Road Task Force. So there were two particular um, undercover, uh, not undercover, but law enforcement agents, um, uh, one from the DEA called uh, Karl Mark Force and one from uh, the Secret Service called um, uh, Bridges, Sean Bridges. And these two guys, um, yeah, uh, well, one of them, Karl Mark Force, went undercover as Knob and pretended to be this massive cartel guy that wanted to buy uh, large amounts of cocaine. So what he was saying was like, you know, everyone's just buying these personal amount crap off your, your um, website. We can take it up to make it huge cartel size operation. Um, but you know, I need to, you need to be able to trust me. I need to be able to trust you. And so he arranged for one of, um, the Silk Road staff to take, uh, to be sent this kilo of cocaine. And his name was Curtis Green. He went by the name Chronic Pain on Silk Road. And when Curtis Green went out and got this kilo of cocaine, they just came in, bang, they got him and, and, you know, said, you've got to tell us everything about Silk Road. And they made him log in. And and um, when he was logged in, this is where it all gets really crazy and bizarre. So Karl Mark Force, he'd been on that um, that task force for ages, but he was also secretly um, uh, he was giving information to the Dread Pirate Roberts about things that were going on at the, the task force for for money, and he was also extorting him out of money for, on, on other um, ways as well. And then he was also this undercover uh, agent called Nob. So only Nob was uh, the one that the rest of the law enforcement knew about. And then he was secretly doing this other stuff to get money out of Silk Road. And then when they caught this guy, Curtis, and made him log into their, his accounts, um, what this other guy, Sean Bridges, did, he knew a lot about computers. He just started helping himself to all the Bitcoin that was um, that Curtis had had. Um, access to so Curtis could change the usernames and passwords of the um the vendors and steal all their bitcoin and so this other guy Sean Bridges he just started doing that of course it wasn't that that was um, completely done off the record no one knew about it so he was stealing all this stuff and then Ross Ulbricht saw that all Dread Pirate Roberts saw that all this money was being stolen and he thought it was Curtis um he thought it was his. The, sorry, it gets very, very complicated. It's a it's lot of hard. names being thrown out. <laughs> I know. So there's there's two two undercover agents. They have um, uh, uh, sprung this guy Curtis, who had a kilo of cocaine sent to him. Curtis worked for Silk Road. He was one of the admins on Silk Road. So when they when they caught him by having him sent this kilo of cocaine. Um, they arrested him and made him log into his Silk Road accounts and show them everything that he knew about Silk Road. 
then these two undercover agents, rather than telling their bosses about it, decided to start stealing all the Bitcoin that was in, in Silk Road instead. And as far as Silk Road was concerned, what they saw was that their, their um, employee, Curtis, was doing all this thievery. Um, so, yeah. so it was kind of like trying to put the blame on Curtis in a way. They, they, were, they were definitely putting the yeah, blame on so Curtis. He keeps the, so they keep the money while perfect yes. uh, front. And, and they hadn't told their bosses. So, so they were keeping all this money. They were stealing it. And But then what happens is Dread Pirate Roberts is going, all right, so um, this guy Curtis is stealing all this money. And he was chatting about it to, I'm going to throw another name in, this guy called Variety Jones, who was his mentor. And the two started talking about it. And they decided that um, they needed to send some thugs around to beat Curtis up and get the money back. And the person that they turned to was Nob. Nob was Karmat Force, the undercover police officer. So uh, Dread Pirate Roberts turned to him and said, uh, can you go find this guy, uh, have him beat up, have him return the money. And then some, somewhere along that way, um, you know, Nob said, oh, we can kill him. And they said, all right, kill him. Um, get the money back and then kill him. And so uh, that's when the uh, law enforcement baked Curtis's death, sent photos of it, and so the Dread Pirate Roberts thought that he'd had someone killed, uh, but he hadn't actually had anyone killed. But yeah, it's sorry, it's an insane story. It's really hard to tell um, because of all those different names and because of all the, the crazy things that happened. Um, so they were eventually caught and they went to prison as well. Um, but yeah, that also meant that what happened was, you know, because uh, Dread Pirate Roberts, he he was very um, <coughs> vocal. He's very vocal on the Silk Road forums, and he's always about being this peace-loving libertarian. Um, you know, Silk Road had this philosophy: they would not sell anything, the purpose of which was to harm or defraud another person. So they wouldn't sell, um, you know, any revenge porn. They wouldn't sell stolen um, personal information, stolen financial information. Uh, they wouldn't allow hitmen to advertise on there, anything like that. It, it had to be um, stuff that was for personal use and was, uh, um, you know, didn't hurt another person. So it was very, you know, peace, love and mung beans on there and everybody thought it was like this really peaceful place when behind the, the scenes, then, you know, things were beginning to happen that um, meant that violence was, you know, um, beginning to happen behind the scenes. The whole idea of, of Silk Road was to be able to buy and sell drugs in a violence-free um, way, you know, because right. obviously you can't um, deal over the head and steal his money and his drugs or anything like that if you're not face-to-face -face with them. So the whole idea was, it was to be violence-free and then to discover that behind the scenes that, it had escalated uh, to this point where the Dread Pirate Roberts was calling for hits was quite frightening. It must have been like a whole glass shattering, like, oh, wait, like, the whole picture just reveals itself. I could see that. And I heard um, Dread Pirate Roberts or Ross, he, uh, I, I don't know if he got charged for it, but I heard he had five plus attempted murders like on him. Like he had them sent on like other people. Is that right? Yes. But they weren't real people, which is why he never got charged with them. So um, basically, he got very badly ripped off. There was there were always rip offs happening in in Silk Road. Uh, there were 
um, drug dealers that would uh, make people sort of release money from the escrow and then take off with it and all that sort of thing. And there was one in particular that during this um, this great 420 prize giveaway competition thing, he ripped off Silk Road users to the tune of um, a quarter of a million dollars and then he disappeared. And then a year later or so, this guy came on and, and said, oh, look, um, I know where that guy is. Uh, I can find him for you. And that sort of set off this whole, no, sorry, first of all, and the guy came back, the, the, the one that ripped them off came back and he threatened Dread Pirate Roberts. He said, I have all these people's, all these customers' names and addresses because, of course, you, you get stuff sent to you. You've got to give someone your name and address to have it sent to you. And he said, I've kept all these names and addresses and if you don't pay me um, half a million dollars, then I am going to release all these names and addresses. Oh, blackmail. And blackmail, yeah. Um, I'm going to release your customers' names and addresses. And um, so Dread Pirate Roberts was paying him off, but he, he kept on upping it how much he was willing to, he wanted to take to not, not reveal all the names and addresses of his customers. And then um, <clears throat> this, again, it's a really complicated story, but um, he was looking around for, for someone to sort of find this guy and to stop him from blackmailing him. And this other guy got in contact and said, oh, you know, um, my name's Red and White suggested that he was hell's angels and we can find this guy and we can get him for you, you know, pay us uh, $600,000. And he, Dread Pirate Rob said, okay, Will. And <clears throat> then he said something like, oh, he's living with, um, you know, four flatmates. We have to take them all out. And he said, okay, do it. And, and so he basically ordered these hits on five people, um, four of whom he'd never met, never had any sort of beef with. And Red and White said, all right, we've done it. Um, pay us the money but it was all one person ripping him off it was all one person scamming him none of these people ever actually existed except for red and white and um they just scammed him out of like hundreds of thousands possibly millions of dollars over, over time so that's why he was never actually charged with this even though there was sort of chat logs about it because it never actually happened <laughs> you, you can't even be charged with attempted murder if there's not actually a, a potential victim on the other side of that yeah that's a odd one <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah but no I, i'm not a lawyer i mean kind of but nah and wait these guys weren't um agents they were just people trying to scam him out of money yeah they were just scammers or he was originally a drug dealer um and i was doing drugs on silk road selling drugs that wasn't enough money for him so he started blackmailing and then started scamming <laughs> wow so in the end i heard he he gets um charged two lifetimes plus forty years, right? Yep, he's uh, he has no chance of getting out of prison without a presidential pardon. Wow! And actually, I heard uh, he Trump almost gave him a pardon too. Apparently, yeah. he was considering it. He was one of the ones that he was considering um, because there's like there's this huge swell behind him, uh, the Freed Ross movement, um, and I know they've got something like three hundred thousand signatures on their their petition to to have him have his sentence commuted um and there was talk that uh that trump was uh open to um commuting his sentence but it never happened gotcha how much money did he end up getting arrested with i heard like he had a decent chunk of money in bitcoin so that's almost impossible to say because um i think at the time um 
his personal stash was something like $68 million worth. Uh, the Bitcoin, the, the turnover of Silk Road was about $300 million worth, though it was reported at the time as being $2 billion. But because Bitcoin had grown so exponentially over that time, that's one of the other weird things is a lot of um, drug dealers on Silk Road didn't make their millions dealing drugs. They made their millions by holding onto Bitcoin, which then just grew exponentially. Um, and so that's how they, they made all their millions. So in today's terms, the turnover there was in the billions getting close to the trillion, you know. Um, it was definitely in the billions, but in those days it was in the hundreds of millions, which is a lot, but nothing compared to what your cartels and that are, are turning over. Um, but, yeah, there's just, I mean, there's still lost money, lost money coming out of, out of uh, Silk Road now. Someone just recently handed into the government a Bitcoin wallet with um, $2 billion worth of Bitcoin in it that they had, according to the, the court documents, they had stolen it from Silk Road back in 2012 and held on to it and they handed it over in order not to get um, a prison sentence. So we have no idea who that is. There's, um, there's a list of people that it could be that's, that several of us are trying to figure out who it might be, but um, they have no idea who it is. I wish. Um, I mean, I'm sure the guy, he knows more. He thought about it more than me, but maybe take out like just a little bit of that, like a little little icing <laughs> off that, put in your own wallet. <laughs> I mean, the problem, the problem with Bitcoin um, is... Uh, the, the, the reason he's, he's handed it over as well is he couldn't move it because um, people like, I don't know how much you know about cryptocurrency and the blockchain, but every single wallet is visible to every single person on the blockchain. So um, if you know that a certain amount of money has gone into this wallet, you can go and have a look on the blockchain, you can see it. And people knew that this stolen Silk Road wallet was out there and it had a certain amount of Bitcoin in it. And so everyone was watching it. And if they'd started to try to move it to another place and then cash it out for, for fiat money, um, people would have been able to follow that chain. And, um, you know, Bitcoin analysis is getting very, is getting really, really good now. And you can, um, you know, there's, there's a point where you have to turn it into real money in order to be able to spend it. And at, that's your weak point. That's where you're likely to get caught. So that's not as, as anonymous as it used to be. Like if I put money in the Bitcoin, I bought some drugs, then took the money out. I'm not like coast clear. I'm not safe. There could be some um, uh, detection. Yeah, it, it's possible. Like, um, so every, every transaction is visible on the, on the blockchain. It's just that they, uh, they don't mean anything. They're meaningless unless you actually know who is on one side or the other of that transaction. But then once you know that, and once you know that this is dirty money going somewhere, you can actually follow it through the blockchain. Uh, there's there's ways of like obviously the the big dealers know this, and there are ways of of obfuscating that and um, and making sure that people can't tell. So uh, changing it into another coin like Monero or something first, which is a much more private coin, things like that. Um, there are ways of of and other money laundering activities that you can do as well. But yeah, generally speaking, uh, it can be traced back to people. Gotcha. All right. I want to bring it back to the book you've written or books you've written. Well, I guess first, what's like your favorite part of any of those books? Like what was your favorite experience that happened? Uh, that would be the Hitman, uh, the Hitman, um, uncovering 
the largest hitman network that ever existed on the dark web, getting to know the owner of it and um, just following that through and, and, and um, yeah, it's um, that, that's a big part of the darkest web was, um, you know, yeah, getting to know this hitman, this hitman network, um, finding out all about his business and spoiler alert, um, the hitman sites are scams. And so what this guy was doing was scamming people that wanted to murder other people out of their Bitcoin. And those people had nowhere to go. They, they couldn't say, oh, I paid for this murder and I didn't get my murder carried out. I want my money back. Um, so it was, that was a very, very lucrative business for him. But I, I got to know him and um, I got to, he even offered me a job to, uh, helping him string these people along like he was like a nigerian what? scammer you know so they they pay ten thousand dollars to have a hit taken out and then he'd say oh you know uh, something happened and i need to get another hitman on the job you have to give me another two thousand so they pay another two thousand he keeps stringing them along until they just you know finally realize that they'd been scammed and he was you know when when i sort of got in touch with him and he was like oh look i'm i'm doing the world a favor you know if if it wasn't for me they might be paying real hitmen this way, I'm scamming would-be murderers out of their money and nobody's getting hurt. And I thought, oh, well, you know, he's got a point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that was that was all quite interesting. Um, it's an interesting logic. Actually died, but... Wait, somebody actually died? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry? Like a, yeah, from like a hitman <laughs> yeah. or...? Uh, uh, well, it was someone that had a hit taken out on them on, on the Beast Mafia site, uh, but, yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a hitman in the end that did it, so... Yeah. Well, I will say too, like the logic is, yeah, like he's, you could almost say karma. Like I want somebody killed, but then I'm out of the money and the murder doesn't happen. So it's kind of a, well, yeah, form of karma. Yeah. <laughs> Think about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that's what he thought. But yeah, yeah but I mean, then um, because we managed to, well, when I say we, um, this guy uh, in London called Chris Montero, who's a, a um, uh, cyber security expert hacker uh, managed to hack into this um, hitman site and so we could actually see all the orders that were coming in and all the messages that were going out and all that was that was going on and uh, that's that's sort of how we found out at first that you know it was definitely a scam we thought it was a scam anyway but that's when we realized just how many people around the world were genuinely paying money hoping to have hits taken out which is a scary thing to suddenly have in front of you and um, back then we started trying to, you know, tell the FBI about the American ones and the NCA and the and UK about their ones and the federal police here about our ones. No one had listened to us. They're all like, what are you talking about, dark web, hitmen? No, nah, we don't understand this. And they wouldn't really wouldn't really listen to us. Um, and they didn't listen to us until one of the people on that list wound up dead after we tried to tell them about it. So, uh, and then, then they started really sitting up and, and going through this list of all these people that had hits taken out on them and contacting them and saying, oh, you know, who might have wanted to try to take a hit out on you? Um, yeah, so, because even, even though the, the site was a scam, um, these were very real people really hoping to kill other real people. So it's a pretty horrifying thing to find out. And there was like a hitman or two, like legitimate ones in there that actually carried it out? There weren't back then, but there has been now. There's been two legitimate hits taken out on the, the dark web. One of them was in Russia. Um, very hard to understand exactly what happened then, but uh, they they advertise their services on Hydra, which is the, the largest Russian um, darknet market on the, the dark web at the moment. 
And there's just been one last week that was um, gone to court in Finland. So I'm not sure about the background of that one yet either. But they were both hitmen that were hired on on the dark web. Yeah, and um, yeah, like back with Silk Road, nothing damaging towards another person or something like that was the policy. So obviously no hitmen, but there's like no uh, giving social securities. Was it? all drugs or was there anything else besides drugs that could be found on the Silk Road? There were drugs, mostly it was drugs. There were fake IDs, um, which you could argue is to defraud another person. But the idea behind the fake IDs was, um, you know, uh, drug dealers needed them, drug users sometimes needed them to open up post office boxes and that sort of thing. Um, that, that was the main stuff. But nowadays, so there's like, you know, Silk Road's been shut down, but now they're... Since then, there's been dozens and dozens of new ones opened up, and most of them are, have been bigger than Silk Road ever was, so much higher turnover, and they don't have that rule. So now um, the darknet markets that operate today also sell uh, stolen personal identity, uh, hacked information, hacking tools, malware, um, all your financial information, your stolen credit cards, all that sort of stuff. They sell all that stuff now. So it's not just drugs. Drugs are still the, the main thing. Um, the main money maker, but these digital goods are getting higher and higher all the time. Um, and so obviously when, when you hear something about, you know, Facebook's been hacked and all your information is out there, that's where it is. People are selling it um, on, on the dark web. So, yeah, the new, the new markets are not don't quite have the morality, I'll say, with air quotes, um, as Silk Road had. How come, uh, how come they're not getting shut down the same way as Silk Road got shut down? Well, I mean, the way he got shut down was making mistakes. And so they, they, they had a massive number of resources looking for him. And they do. Some of them do. So same sort of thing. They make mistakes. It's always um, a, a human being gets unmasked by someone who, through some clever social engineering, <clears throat> there's undercover people all the time, you know, tr looking for them, uh, pretending to be someone else, trying to get them to give up information that will tell them where they are. But there's, so far, the actual um, technologies behind it, so your, your Tor technologies, your encryption technologies, uh, are still quite robust. And, you know, you, you haven't got super secret cyber hacker people uh, finding out who they are or where they are. You've got regular detectives or detective work uh, uncovering, getting them to make mistakes. So everyone that's been taken down, it's been because of a mistake. The ones remaining are probably like, maybe like not anonymous like that group, but they're it's definitely run by somebody <laughs> or some group that's seen what other people's mistakes were. So now they know like, if we do this, we're safe, we're okay. That's the idea. They're still getting caught. Um, but yeah, there's there's a um, there's always these forums with that these guys all sort of get together and they know all the mistakes that their predecessors have made. And so they're, they're getting better at covering themselves up. But then um, you also wonder whether they're also being now run by um, organised crime and things like that. They're, they're no longer being run by nerds in their bedroom, which is what Russ Ulbricht was. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, Silk Road. They shut it down because of what it did. It was like illegal, the drugs, all that stuff. But if they didn't uh, shut it down, it probably would have been better off, I guess, because now that people don't have that same restricted libertarian few he had or now they're just like what you said probably just organization saying oh we don't care we're going to do whatever versus his yeah. tame rebellion 
Yeah, possibly. I mean, there, there are other much smaller markets that do operate on that sort of thing and, and they'll only sell like your psychedelics or, um, you know, your, your ecstasy, your MDMA and your psychs and they won't sell any of your harder drugs. Um, so there are smaller markets like that out there that still operate on those philosophies, but your really big major darknet markets now, they're selling all sorts of stolen crap. You think they would have come up anyway? Like, so they probably still would have rose in, in popularity regardless of the Silk Road falling apart. Well, that's the thing. Back in the Silk Road days, um, others tried. So others tried to come on the market, but because of the way the Dread Pirate Roberts ran Silk Road, like he was, it, it wasn't just a, buy, a place to buy and sell stuff. It wasn't just a market. It was a massive community. It was a really strong community. And he was always in there. Um, like he ran, uh, had book club. He had movie nights. <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was always in there sort of talking to everybody about his philosophies, um, about what he believed and, and getting people involved in all these conversations. And so other markets tried to, to start up back then. None of them made, made any inroads whatsoever because people were like, nah, you're, you're crooks, you're horrible. We love, you know, this peaceful libertarian paradise here, Silk Road. Um, and so... Others had a lot of trouble getting traction. As soon as we shut down, bang, there was three or four opened up right away. So it's hard to say whether they would have opened up anyway, but, uh, you know, at the time it was very hard for any competitors to get in, to get a look in. Gotcha. And legally, can't he just say it's like a software, like, oh, I just created the software where people can do what they want. Like, how is how did he get arrested all those years? Well, two lifetimes was 40 years for creating the website, I guess. Cause I don't know. Like, doesn't that sort of resolve him? Like make him not guilty. They shouldn't um, still be able to run the same way tour runs, I guess. Yeah. So, well, well, tour itself, there's nothing illegal about tour and it has a lot of really good, good uses. And it was actually developed in order to um, help uh, keep military secrets. So it was developed in part by the U S government, um, and the idea of it was to, to um, you know, help people in uh, hostile regimes overseas be able to get together and um, not have their communications followed at all. And, uh, but they needed to release it to the world at, at large because if the only traffic going through the Tor network was uh, military secrets, then anybody watching would know that, um, that that's what was going through there. So it's, you know, they, they release it to the world at large and people can use it for all sorts of reasons. And it's not all nefarious reasons. It's just that this is one tool that um, is very handy for, um, you know, people that want to uh, commit crimes to have. But then so's a car. So is the internet in general. So is a phone. You know, um, it is just another tool that uh, people can use for for good or for not so good. So then, yeah, how come uh, Silk Road didn't have that same approach? Like, where it's a tool, even though it's much more, it's used much more for drugs. Like, why didn't he still get that same pass of, oh, I just created a tool? Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a very long and drawn out um, court case about that. But I, I mean, he he knew that drugs were being sold on his platform, and he facilitated that use. I guess so. Um, you know, that's why. But the fact that he got such a long sentence is quite insane. Like El Chapo didn't get that big a sentence. You know, it's, so the fact that he got it was definitely to make a um, you know, to make a point. I think uh, when they gave him that sentence. Yes. It's just weird though to make a point with like somebody's life. Yeah. Know. Yeah. 
All right, what about who are the four lieutenants you met? I couldn't find too much on them, so I'm a little confused about that. Uh, right, so that was just so his four main staff members. Um, so he had them around the world in order to be able to run 24 7. So there was one here in Australia, um, there was one in uh, Ireland, one in the U and one in the US, and one in Thailand. So um, after they all got arrested, I went and visited them in sometimes in prison, sometimes not in prison, um, and interviewed them all around the world. <coughs> so they were just part of his staff, but he had a very large staff. Uh, like, like I said, he had administrators, moderators, um, programmers, all those sorts of things on his staff. It was a big, big thing to run. Was um was Mongoose one of those four lieutenants, or is he something different? Yeah, so Mon Mongoose was Variety Jones. <laughs> Again, these people all have way too many names. So um, Roger Clark, also known as Mongoose, also known as Variety Jones. And Variety Jones was Ross Ulbricht's mentor. And so he was like one of the major players in Silk Road and made a lot of the decisions um, right from the very, very beginning. And he was one that nobody knew existed until... Uh, Ross Albrecht got arrested and the court case came out and then all these chat logs that he'd kept of things that he'd, he'd um, discussed with Variety Jones slash Mongoose. Uh, so I, w I went to visit him in um, uh, Bangkok Remand Prison. I saw him uh, four or five times over there before he got extradited to the US. So he's currently waiting sentencing for his role. And so no way knew he existed. So he's like a real smart man. He was like <laughs> a smart guy operating beyond the scene. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, so he'd been in the what they call the seed biz for uh, many, many years. He's he'd be approaching sixty. He's an older guy, and um, yeah, he he really knew what he was doing. And when he first came in, uh, he later on admitted he came in with the uh, intention of destroying Silk Road and and uh, messing it up. But he got in there and he started. Uh, talking to to Ross Ulbricht and and got to like him and got to like what he was doing and realised how much money could be made, and so he decided to stay on and he became Ross Ulbricht's mentor, making a lot of the business decisions for him. I saw that when somebody asked you on Reddit, what was your idea when you sat and interviewed with them? Was that he was like very smart in the sense that you'd like bring something up, and then the next time you met with him, he thought about that interview. And he thought about like certain things he wanted to question you or he was, yeah, like very smart with his responses. Yeah. He, um, he really, like he was really manic and he, when he spoke, he spoke a lot really fast and a lot of things came out and it went all over the place. But um, when I spoke and yeah, if I, if I mentioned something, sometimes he wouldn't get onto it right away, but there was something in his, his brain. And then the next day he'd be like, so you said this and then, uh, and then expand on it or ask more things about it. Nothing got by him. Absolutely. Not one word I said got by him. Uh, he was yeah, very smart, but also uh, a little bit scary. Yeah. Scary. Um, I saw an article and he would sign posts by saying, the last thing you effing want is my undivided attention. That's like, right. <laughs> that's um. Yeah. That's a little scary. That's a little terrifying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what about, does this relate to Silk Road, but who's Lux? Do you know who he is when I say that? I know that? Lux doesn't relate to Silk Road. Yeah, I know who Lux is. Um, how dark do you want to go? <laughs> Lux has nothing to do with Silk Road. Lux, Lux ran the worst 
pedophile empire on the dark web. Okay. I'll say that for, if people want to look into it, go ahead and look into that then. We'll talk about Silk Road. Yeah. But yeah. I guess the dark thing, uh, one in the description of one of your books, there was like a section that said like dark, darker, darkest. So I guess what's the dark, darker, and darkest you found from your research? All right. So the book is basically, yeah, it's, it's divided into those three. And dark was uh, the drugs. Uh, so Silk Road and, and the ones that came after it and, um, you know, the stolen identifications, all that. Darker was the hitmen um, and the people that were trying to get take out hits. Darkest was Lux and, um, uh, and it's not just so... The dark web is a massive proliferation of uh, child exploitation sites, and it's not just child pornography, if you want to say that. It is like full-on torture, the worst of the worst, and Lux owned those sites, so that's darkest. Um, okay. You know, it doesn't get much darker than child torture, I don't think. So, um, yeah, that's how it was sort of divided up the dark web. I think you um had like a sort of a warning section in your book. Like when something would come up, you'd say like warning for what's coming ahead. That's what that was. That's what that was. Yeah. And obviously I don't go into graphic detail about stuff, but just the, the knowledge that it's there and the people that, and there's so many people involved in it is just the stuff of nightmares. Well, I believe it. Yeah. For the audience, if you want to uh, hear about that, you'll see a link for the book in the description. Go read that. All right, so I get all right. So it sounds like dark, darker, darkest. Like that sounds all bad. So when you look at Silk Road, do you think it was a like was there good to it? Because like, oh, you can see what drugs you want, get it clean, maybe a preference overdose, addiction, or whatever. Or do you see it as overall bad because of like some of those examples? No, I definitely don't see it as overall bad. And I, I did a lot of work with a lot of academics as well that did a lot of um, uh, research into Silk Road and whether um, it, it was an overall positive thing because, if you know, if you think just say no is going to work with drugs, it's not, okay? We, so we, we, we've, we've gone beyond that. People want to take drugs, but most of them want to take it safely. And places like Silk Road did offer a safer alternative to people who wanted to take recreational drugs um you could even go so far as there, there were uh people that were addicted to heroin that gave me their their stories and said that silk road helped them because they were able to get um a regular clean supply that was always the same which actually meant that they were able to go out and, and function in society rather than you know having to go down get uh whatever they could from the dealer on the corner which could be dirty, could be over pure, could be under pure, could be cut with something. <coughs> and so they actually were able to uh, begin to function in their lives. And even some of them uh, reckon that they uh, went and got help from doctors and, and got off their addictions, thanks to having that clean, regular supply. Now, um, yeah, so in those ways, I think it was, it was, not a bad place to be it was it wasn't it was a better alternative to what was out there currently for, for people um you know maybe in a, a great utopian world no one would do drugs but the fact that people are and the fact that they had a safer way of doing it i think was not a bad thing and for that reason you just explained i'm assuming or i'm taking a guess that would you like support decriminalizing or legalizing drugs and across like all yes. countries 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, Portugal, just look at what's happened in Portugal. They, they've been decriminalised for like 12 years and their problematic drug use has gone down so far. Um, drug-related crime has gone down, all those things. It's it's a no-brainer to me to, to decriminalise or legalise. Yeah, I've done a few episodes. Like one was on uh, addiction or well, actually quite a few. And like that's just a common theme. Every reporter, everybody says like, <laughs> The war on drugs is obviously this abysmal, like, I can't swear on the show, but like, effing, F, S, uh, every swear, like, fest of like how it just operate and the consequences and decriminalizing, legalizing just seems to have every, well, not like, obviously, people are still doing drugs. If you're against it, it's like, okay, but I mean, it's kind of just a person doing a drug. Yes, some people can get addicted, and those cases are awful. But it does reduce even like addiction rates. It does reduce dependence. It reduces overdoses. It reduces like just so many things. So, <coughs> That's right. And uh, you know, the, the main people that don't want the end to the war on drugs are the owners of the cartels. <laughs> you know, they, they, there goes their money. If you suddenly legalize it and you have a an ethical supply of it um, <laughs> that can be taxed, can be regulated, then uh, you know all these uh, these crime families are suddenly not going to have their main income so uh, yeah it's a no-brainer to me i forgot about that whole side yeah they're definitely losing power from that too yeah what about i bring back the silk road though uh i think it comes out this year did it already come out but i heard there's a silk road movie there is yeah how um how ac- if somebody goes to see <laughs> that movie do you know how accurate it is it's it's not accurate um it's very much a, a sort of hollywood style movie um and the silk road story is so very very complex that it would be difficult to um to do it justice anyway but they uh they sort of uh they didn't concentrate on ross albrecht enough they concentrated too much on this uh absolute creation of a um you know a grizzled cop who's about to retire and gets put on the cybercrime team this guy never existed he's he's not someone that ever existed and so they they created this character um, that had a, a few little bits and pieces of real people in him, but um, was just made up. And yeah, they just didn't delve very far in. And they they made it look like it was a one man show. Silk Road was a one man show. Whereas yes, it was created by Russ Albrecht, but by the end, you know, he had dozens of staff. It, it was not a one man show that was being run. Um, and so none of the other people sort of came up in this movie at all. So yeah. Um, wasn't very accurate. <laughs> All right, sounds good. I'll keep that in mind. All right, about to wrap it up, wrap up the show. Is there any final message you want to tell the audience? Uh, nothing that I can really think of. Like the dark web is not all dark, but uh, there's some very dark places in there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, then sounds good. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for coming out to the show. We've heard the audience, Eileen Ormsby, uh, writer, check out The Darkest Web, Little Girl's Laws, Murder on the Dark Web, Stalker, Sayo.com, Silk Road, quite a few. You'll see links in the description. And if you're on the radio, go to the podcast. Like, just start listening through there. It's better. I recommend it. And you'll see those links in the description. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Thank you.